Take a second and think about your day and then answer me this question. How long do you spend answering approval emails? What about chasing people down to get confirmation on projects? How often do you take screenshots, drop them into a spreadsheet, mail that spreadsheet to someone else, and then they take screenshots, add them to the spreadsheet, and pass that spreadsheet along to someone else as part of their sign-off process? We talk so much about automation and hyper-automation in manufacturing, about all the latest robotics and machine learning and how our shop floors are all transformed and more cutting edge than ever. And then a lot of times we just kind of stop there. But the reality is that shop floor front office automation is just the tip of the iceberg. If you could automate all those back end back office processes through Salesforce, think about how much of your day you'd get back. That's a pretty great feeling, right? This is Transformation at Work, a podcast about real stories of digital transformation and Salesforce success without all the jargon. The show is brought to you by Jarrett, a summit-level Salesforce implementation partner and solutions provider, and I am Jeff Stormer, your host as always. In this episode, we are talking about how to bring hyper-automation to the back office to unlock employees' full potential and get them back to doing the jobs they're passionate about. Our guest is Anandi Narayanan, Jaren's Senior Vice President of Strategy and Business Transformation and Manufacturing. Anandi has 17 years of experience in manufacturing, and she's seen firsthand the kind of potential teams can unlock by automating processes and centralizing workflows into Salesforce. We begin our conversation talking about exactly what we mean when we talk about hyper-automation and we talk about unlocking employee potential. A lot of automation that they're doing or hyper automation is about, you know, accelerating anything that I can do digitally that kind of takes the human out of the equation. And as you can imagine, a ton of that is robotics, right? Or IoT devices um, and things like that. And so there's a lot of focus on the shop floor. But what I'm also excited to talk about today with you is, you know, how does that play a role in the back office or in, you know, the business roles, the things that, you know, people do at their desks in offices, as opposed to necessarily the people um, on the floor making making the widgets, so to speak. And I think that's a, a really valuable distinction to make because it's easy to hear the word automation and the word hyper automation in particular and think, sure. We're going to bring in a piece of robotics. We're going to put it on the shop floor. We're going to manually eliminate a piece of the assembly process when in reality, there are just as many opportunities for the back office to eliminate unnecessary workflows, cut down on those time consuming processes and those sort of swivel chair pivot moments that employees are facing and really genuinely unlock their potential in a way that maybe hasn't been done before. Yeah. And I actually like the way you phrase that. Um, unpack or, you know, unlock, unleash the potential, right? Because when people hear automation, and probably rightfully so, they might get a little bit nervous because they think if I'm going to automate my job, that robot's taking over, AI is taking over, um, and I'm no longer useful. And it's really not about automating it to make you not useful. It's really about unlocking your potential. There is definitely a role for the human in everything. And we're just trying to get the human to get to do what I'm going to call the value-added work, or the high thinking work, or the critical thinking work, or like delivering that right experience and automation is supposed to just enable them. It's really, I mean, on a fundamental level, it's about getting getting us back to doing our jobs, right? I think every one of us has a million different tasks that we do that are part of our day that we, that, you know, we do because they help move the process along. But 
they're not strictly the thing that we went to school for, that we're passionate about, that we are, when we describe our jobs, they're not the things that we're describing. And finding ways to automate those processes just puts more time in our laps to do the stuff that helps us get out of bed in the morning. Exactly. Exactly. So at a high level, what are a few examples of how moving data and processes onto Salesforce can identify those opportunities for automation or streamline or processes that can be streamlined? Salesforce, as we know, is a CRM solution. So it's a customer relationship management solution. So what does that mean? And you know, and where can it help people? We're talking about any of those processes that support sales, which is obvious, but also support customer service and also support marketing. Because all of these functions together are people that directly or indirectly are trying to communicate or connect with the customer. And in traditional mechanisms of automation, that method of collaborating is called email. And uh, what we're taking away is not using email as that connective tissue, but Salesforce can actually act as that connective tissue and drive things like approvals or tasks or notifications. uh, And you can bring those concepts onto the platform. This is a really important distinction. And frankly, if you are thinking about automation or hyper automation or any of these things, Looking at email approvals is one of the big areas you need to be looking at because, let's be real, we all know that it's a huge time sink. I mean, seriously, think about it. How many emails do you send in a day? How many reply-alls and follow-ups and check-ins and touch bases and approvals and final approvals and final final approvals? It, It's chaos. It's a massive source of inefficiency for you and for your team. Being able to put even a dent into your average employee's email workload and untether even a few of these processes from that final step of pivoting into email to chase down that approval, that is going to free up your team's capacity in just an immediate and profound way. And also, it's going to make your employees less likely to punch their screen, which that feels like a win-win to me. Let's send it back to Anandi. So if I think of, again, manufacturers, what are some of these sort of quirky processes that these folks have to do between each other? It's about setting things like pricing agreements that need to be syndicated to a customer, uh, building up quotes that might need to be fanned through many organizations or teams, engineers, pricing teams, procurement teams, finance to get approvals on, requesting samples or free goods and, you know, being able to just collect the request Um, coordinate the request and send it out and get that feedback back from the customer. Um, Or we know marketing is creating promotions or incentives and how do they syndicate it again to all the people, including the customer, so that they have awareness about what the organization is trying to put forward. That point about connecting teams is a really, really valuable one, right? Like being able to standardize the platform on which we're all working, that's going to allow you to really unlock these huge, huge gains by really leveraging every arm of your organization at once in unison, in harmony, as opposed to before where you have these sorts of swivel chair moments, right? You're hopping between platforms, you're going into email chains, you're swinging by Roy's desk to see if he's got the materials to support the email approval that you've got to send out. We've all been there and we've all seen how that kind of experience can create a really disjointed organization and by bringing everybody onto Salesforce, getting them to work in the same space, you're really, you're remedying that. And that's huge. And frankly, the returns on that can be massive. 
And that's a great question. So I think they've been facing a lot of challenges, but I'll be honest, I think COVID probably exacerbated some of the challenges. So I can't I take, imagine, so, I can't imagine that be the, be, be the case. <laughs> if I go my pre-COVID case, you know, I, I joke in part, but you know, the manufacturer's digital toolkit on a new employee is probably post-it notes and a, a physical book and a pen, right? And so many times when I've worked with customers, have they told me, you know, uh, the way I get things done is by writing it down and passing that piece of paper or this binder to this human or this individual, and they physically get their pen to paper to sign something and get it released. Um, yes, they have tools past that. You you need your uh, ERP tools, for example, to maybe execute an order, but everything else in between is is really just pen and paper. And so, you know, that was a pre-COVID situation and already organizations were recognizing that feels a little inefficient. No one's allowed to go on vacation unless they go sit in somebody else's cubicle to look at those post-it notes and actually know how to do their job. That's the thing, really, like, even before you factor in, say, a world-changing pandemic, for instance, that system's already not great, especially for newer employees, younger employees, more tech-savvy employees coming in who are more comfortable working in these environments anyway, that system of physical binders and sign-off sheets, if I'm coming into an organization for the first time, that's going to feel antiquated, and it's going to work, don't get me wrong, but it opens up those possibilities of, like Anandi said, knowledge loss if I'm out for a day, or systems getting held up because I guess we couldn't find Jerry. And of course, that's how it was before everything changed. And then COVID came and they suddenly had to like work from home and be digitally ready. And email became that channel, I guess, for everybody to exercise all these activities. But it was quickly inefficient. And in some of the areas we're seeing that inefficiency exacerbated, I would say, are things like pricing agreements. And they're, and it's a fascinating concept. A pricing agreement fundamentally says, hey, I make a product and maybe it costs me $50 to make it plus maybe a $10 markup for my um, for my organization. And I sell it to you maybe for $60, but you're a special customer to me. So I'm discounting it to you for $55. So my profitability is $5 on that unit. And traditionally over time, what manufacturers relied on was really squeezing the supply base and saying, hey, you got to give me the ingredients to make my product at a cheaper cost quarter over quarter. And in that capacity, I can maybe pass savings to my customer, but still retain some sort of margin for myself. So that's kind of how it's all been working. Those agreements haven't been well digitized for most organizations, um, unless you're fairly sophisticated. They're entered maybe into an ERP for execution, but you know the actual creation of that contract and the, and the life cycle of it, I don't know, a piece of paper, a Word document, PDF, maybe on a piece of napkin somewhere, right? And nothing, nothing fancy or sophisticated. And here COVID came and the material prices weren't reducing. The, those ingredients that I was typically used to buying and squeezing out of my supply base actually went up in price. And they were not even going up in price at a, at a rate that people were able to keep up with. They were going up in price every single month and people were trying to catch up. Well, if that product that I am selling to you now suddenly costs more for me to even buy the materials to make and then give to you, if I don't hustle and update all those agreements, I might be losing money because I'm at the mercy of my supplier to actually get the, the ingredients in. And we're seeing customers who say it takes them six or eight weeks to actually just get all of this orchestrated and organized because those pieces of paper that have been floating all over the internet need to be found, structured, <laughs> pulled down, fixed, and sent out again um, and getting agreements on it. So 
that's one example for what I've seen, you know, popping up more and more now is everyone saying, let's get control over this again, because if we don't, it's no, it's not even just about keeping up with production, it's actually being profitable, right? And being responsible to our profitability, which I now have lost control over. And the other thing that you've kind of lost control over is your people, right? Like it's the, it's that, like you said, like that inability for someone to, you know, go on vacation is, is vastly complicated when suddenly we all spent, you know, a year and a half trying to refigure out how to live our lives a little bit, right? Like that ability to say, well, this person's got a handle on it because they've got the post-it notes and they've got the binder. It's like, well, yeah, but now suddenly all of our lives are in such a sense of uh, such a sense of, of we're reevaluating our lives so thoroughly like that reliance on, you know, having the people with the post-it notes is suddenly completely out the window. Yeah. And, and so they've also looked at basic things. Like I don't have visibility to your point to anything that people are doing anymore. Um, You can still have those meetings. We can still have the zoom calls. It's not that we can't do that, but you know, so much was understood just from like the water cooler conversations, right? Pass your boss in the hallway. Hey, how did that meeting go with such and such a customer? Fabulous. Even though maybe I didn't have it digitally recorded, I had the conversation. I don't have those water cooler conversations. I have to organize a water cooler conversation if it's a 15-minute huddle with my team, right? Um, And even my own reps who historically maybe visited customer sites, and that's how they distilled and understood and digested all those human interactions are now digitally occurring. And now I have to take copious notes. And where do I store those copious notes? Maybe just in my hard drive. And now my boss doesn't have visibility to it whereby, you know, he or she might've stopped by my desk and just said, Hey, can I grab your book? And can I read and just get a digest? I don't have any of those mechanisms and everyone is adjusting to a new normal, but um, that basic visibility is also another thing that a lot of manufacturers are struggling with. And so this digitization, some of it is just basic transparency. And then we're also dealing with people uh, leaving the sector because they're retiring and naturally so, and new employees coming into the sector, right? And new employees are used to uh, a more digitally friendly environment. And if I told them, here's your, you know, digital book, go write everything down and send it to me, you know, they're probably going to check out day one. So again, manufacturers are recognizing they also have to come uh, and be at pace with where the next generation workers exist so that uh, manufacturing is cool and they might want to join the sector and participate in the sector because it provides the toolkits that are that are recognized in other sectors like software organizations, for example. You also looking ahead, you know, as, as businesses reopen and as the move back into the office, like there's that there's there's a whole other phase of adjustment because you know, we we ju- we got used to everything being remote. We got used to saying, okay, we're going to have these stand-ups and these Zoom calls and these meetings, now suddenly you have a whole other layer of things to track as a manager, which is which of my people are in the office, which of my people are at home, which of my people can I rely on to have those in-person conversations with. And it's just a whole other level of complexity that is that is coming that it, we're now starting to see come in as businesses formally reopen and, and workforces start going back into shared spaces and hybrid spaces and it's not ever going to get less complicated than it is now. No, it's not. And I think everyone's movement towards digitization in some of these spaces, which historically have never had a ton of digitization or automation, will reap a lot of benefits from it. Because, you know, if my employees can be anywhere at any time, how do I get a pulse 
on our collective performance. As we talk about managers really considering and taking those steps for digitization, how does automating those processes through Salesforce kind of drive that value back to the business? How do managers and teams really maximize the value that Salesforce is offering them? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I always look for where am I dependent on emails, right? As my vehicle or my conduit. And it's not that emails go away. It's um, emails are disconnected. And how do I connect it to something? So if I have a ton of email traffic, I have a ton of attachments to those emails, and those are requiring things like approvals or notifications. And and they have this inherent workflow associated to it, but I just don't have something that's holding the workflow together. I think that is an immediate way to say, hey, there's a win here on driving value. Um, And I also think it's important to know where to begin, where to end. I always talk about this concept of think big and act small, and it can sometimes be complicated for organizations when everyone's roles are intertwined, right? So if I'm a manufacturer and I I sell a piece of equipment or a machinery, after I sold the machinery, I would end up working with my customer service team to go install that machinery at my manu- at my customer site. Well, my same customer service team who also is responsible for repairing the machinery. So those are two very different streams, even though it's the same team. The same team goes and does an install post-sale, and the same team does a repair as part of a customer traditional customer service activity. And so you can start to quickly see, hey, well, if we digitize a part of this, we're going to improve one aspect, but maybe a la- another aspect has a laggard associated to it. So you know, if I have to transform everything, I'm actually transforming sales and service in that capacity. Or we say we're going to act small and maybe we're just going to transform service right now holistically, but we're not going to influence sales as much. Or we're going to focus just on the sales stream, but we're going to tell everybody we haven't forgotten the other aspects of service. We're not being ignorant of it. We're just trying to make sure we can put our arms around something that we can measure the performance and improvement of and then slowly, you know, add to that. So I think if I am giving advice to folks is look for where email and attachments and that sort of thing, that inherent workflow appears to be present in the way I'm type of the way I'm working. And then when you start to follow the breadcrumbs and you see how big it's getting, uh, don't get ever overwhelmed by the big. Try to figure out where you might bind the beginning and the end. And that that flows really nicely into my next question for you, which is, as I am thinking big and acting small, right? As I am identifying the areas where these are the processes to improve, these are the workflows that we can that we can automate, and these are the teams that we can impact. I'm eventually going to have to bring this plan to my people, right? Like I'm eventually going to have to, I can, I can do all the planning in the world, but no plan survives contact. If I'm a manager working with my team to make this happen, what are the best ways that I can kind of prime my team members to identify those areas that could be automated and really bring them into the process, both to create a more holistic picture of what needs to be improved, but also make sure that they have the kind of buy-in that's going to actually encourage them to take advantage of all of this. Yeah, I think it's part of that is creating an environment for everyone to have a group realization of how are we working? What are the gaps in the way we're working? And collectively, how do we believe we can improve that? And buy-in usually comes in because folks who are experiencing the pain are the ones who, A, want their pain acknowledged and B, want a way to remediate their pain. Um, 
I've used different techniques in the past. Sometimes I use sort of design thinking approaches where perhaps I might follow certain people or say, can I shadow you and see how you're working? Because maybe it's not clear to you where your areas of pain and gain are. But if I watch you, I might be able to pull it out because I might watch the way you're working and say, hey, that doesn't seem like the most effective. Wouldn't it be better if? And we can start to have those conversations together. Uh, other times, you know, subject matter experts might feel like, hey, I've lived and breathed this problem. I, I actually have a list of the pains and would love if someone wants to come in and design a better way of working here. But priming a team for me fundamentally is, you know, seeking the what's in it for them or their buy-in because it's their experiences that I'm truly attempting to alleviate uh, and make better with them. And through that, you also will learn what's truly doable. Sometimes something is painful. Um, but we're not ready to make it better, despite how painful it really might be. And so we spent some time brainstorming, right? We've 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 studied, we've shadowed, we've talked with our teams, we've taken that holistic picture, we've got our data in place, we've identified the pain points that we can address, right? Like we've we've identified the thing that we're ready to to deploy Salesforce and really like bring a process into an automated state. Yeah. What are the steps that you recommend that a team leader should take before whole hog eliminating an existing workflow? Like, what would you yeah. like to see in place before we hit the off button and say we're not handing out this this binder anymore? Yeah, before we unplug, right? Yeah. So this depends on where we're automating. So if I'm automating things that are related to financials, and especially if we're a publicly traded company, uh, you need to do some significant due diligence. So what could financials look like? So Salesforce has products and suites that help organizations with sales forecasting, which really can help with the sales and operations planning component of it, but really also allow us to say, what is our revenue going to look like for new and existing business? Those are really um, astronomical tools, I would say, are an improvement in the way manufacturers work today, because a lot of those do those types of activities in Excel. Um, but there's fiduciary responsibility within it, because if I'm projecting revenue, especially publicly traded company, you know, you can't go wrong with that. So in organizations today, you know, all those Excel spreadsheets will be highly gated and go through multiple review cycles uh, before sort of a CFO is ready to publicly announce anything. So in those capacities, if I was digitizing that portion using manufacturing cloud, I always recommend to my customers, you know, multiple rounds, not only just of basic user te acceptance testing, now we're talking about data testing and validation of data before anything gets unplugged. And I would say, if you have a monthly cycle, let's maybe run two monthly cycles, convince ourselves, or maybe run them in parallel. Or if you had a historical cycle that I could validate, right? We want to really make sure that it's all buttoned up. Uh, another example would be rebates. Rebates uh, or incentive programs is something that Salesforce can support as a tool set. However, you know, that's about commissions and payouts. Again, there's a monetization component to this. And if I'm paying out a distributor or a reseller or a partner of any kind X number of dollars because of their uh, purchasing patterns with me, and I mess that up, you know, that's uh, upsetting from the impacts it's going to have from our perception with our partner ecosystem. But it's also upsetting from the fiduciary place of it all, right? If I've overpaid or underpaid, you know, there's all of that um, reversal, so to speak, that would be painful to execute. So those types of things, for me, I would never unplug right away. It's a very slow unplug. 
Let's all make sure we're all equally confident and satisfied with the outputs. um, And then let's unplug. It's about confidence, right? Like when you're dealing with financials, when you're dealing with C-suite level approvals, those aren't things you can just say, well, good enough is good enough. Good enough can't be good enough in these cases. That's where additional testing, additional peer review, backup plans become a really vital part of the equation and where a qualified technology partner becomes a key advisor because they're the ones that are going to guide you through those stress tests. They're the ones that are going to run those backups and the UATs to ensure that everything is really perfectly buttoned up before you unplug. Now that brings with it the question of are there cases where it is really that easy to just unplug a process? Let's hear what Anandi has to say. But if this, if the automation has to do with, um, I'm preparing a quote and uh, I need my boss, which is you, Jeff, who's going to sign that quote for me and it's going to be an approval process, we can't really go wrong with something like that. So let's do our normal sort of UAT cycles, validate it's working, smoke test, as we call it in production, so that everyone's happy. And, you know, unplug the old way of working. Now, unplugging the old way of working is challenging for many because there are going to be people who still will send that through email, right? So Mm -hmm. this is where you're going to have to get a little bit, um, I guess, like heavy handed sometimes with leadership to say, I will not approve an email driven uh, approval cycle. I will only approve it if the system allows me to approve it or asks me to approve it, right? So there's a little bit of heavy handedness that has to happen from a change management perspective. But those ones I would never fear unplugging from because there's low impact to the organization uh, from that sort of fiduciary perspective. I mean, eventually, you know, you got to rip off the band-aid, right? Like there's being nice and there's being accommodating, but at a certain point you have to be able to say, I'm not looking at this. If it comes to me in an email, don't send it to me in an email. You know, like if we're implementing a process, eventually we have to be able to implement that process or else the work falls apart. Yeah. And sometimes Uh, To add to, I guess, the work of automation, this is sometimes where dashboards and reports become effective, because if I manage the performance of my team with some things around dashboards and say, you know, how many how many quotes did we do and how many got approved on time? And then you see those quotes that systematically don't have an approval because someone, you know, used an email mechanism. You should start to see the ugly. Right. And and that's Mm -hmm. also partly what's going to be needed to encourage people to shift the way they're working Um, unfortunately, right or wrong, right? Relationships are had between humans. And sometimes we think, well, if I just sent that to Jeff, he's going to respond to it. But if I put it in the system, he's not going to notice it. And then he's Mm -hmm. not going to reply to me. But Jeff and I, we're good. So I'm just going to go direct because it's the fastest way I can get something done. And people just have to overcome that and recognize Jeff can hit approve on a system and Jeff can hit send an email back to me to approve. But this is the way we're collectively agreeing to work. Yeah. And it's, it's recognizing the benefits that come with that. Right. It's, I can send an email to Anandi, like we, we, we have a relationship. I can send you an email, but that is on some implicit level that maybe we're not even like fully thinking of, you know, uh, consciously, like that is asking you to make a swivel chair moment. And that is saying, Hey, take a, take a moment away from your time to like switch systems. Because, you know, like you said, an email is a system. It is its own it is its own separate space that we're working in yeah. and that taking that moment is undercutting the kind of efficiency gains that we're gaining by, by automating these processes. And 
by recognizing, yes, it's going to be a change. And yes, I have to count on my colleagues' ability to to see the thing and trust them to follow through on their end of the equation. We're ultimately going to to, to reap those benefits in a very uh, tangible and profound way. Yeah. And if, if we force everybody, so to speak, on some things within the system, like, so if I think of a sales process and say, well, all opportunities have to be in the system. And as a leader, I'm going to be monitoring for that. Right. And then you start to see people talk about an opportunity that that's not in the system, you know, uh, that, that kind of undermines what we're talking about in terms of a process. And if I then take away the automations that I, that, that would have enabled, my boss might say to me, well, fine, you know what, if you're not going to use the system, you have to manually update it with everything. So now I've added more administrative work to myself because yeah. I want Jeff to approve something. Now I have to go into the system and I have to say as approved by Jeff. And now I have to copy and paste that email. So from an auditory perspective, really, did I need to do all of that? Or could I have just used the system to get Jeff to approve it? And the system acts as the audit trail that there's nothing left for me to do, right? And that's what we're that's what we're after here, right? That that ability to say there's nothing there's nothing here for me to do is kind of the ideal end state, and so that's kind of the 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 finish line to keep in mind through the whole process. Right. If I had an hour in a day, do I want to spend that hour evaluating your quote and seeing that my customer would would accept it, or do I want to spend ten minutes evaluating the quote and fifteen minutes copy pasting strange approval screenshots? Um, <laughs> to ensure compliance to an audit trail. You know, I want that hour to really just scrutinize the quote, right? And I, yeah. I really want to dial it in. And maybe I want to use the time to call my customer and say, hey, it's coming in at this number. What do you think? How do you react? Is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Like, that's what I want to spend our time on. Um, and just take away some of that administrative burden. And this kind of, this this very naturally flows into the last question that I want to ask you, which is, uh, which we're kind of already discussing, which is, as we are automating these processes, as we are moving things into Salesforce, what are some of the common stumbling blocks teams might run into? And how can I, as a team leader, help my, help my employees overcome them? Yeah. So I alluded to the fact that let's look at, you know, emails and spreadsheets and things like that, because that's always an area for efficiency gains. But sometimes spreadsheets can also be confusing because they're so flexible working in Microsoft Excel. And there are a lot of times where there's this dependency on the human eye. Um, On countless occasions, I've seen my customers say, oh, yeah, I use this spreadsheet and I just know that these two companies are the same company. And I say, how do you know that? Oh, well, you know, I just know it. Okay, so you knowing it is really amazing, but a system isn't you and it doesn't have that discretion that the human eye has or that the human intelligence has on its own to sort of compartmentalize or group something because they look the same, right? So I look at it and I decide, you know, Google Inc. is probably the same as G-O-O space space G-L-E and it's probably the same as Google because I can figure that out. But a system, you would need to code a system to tell it all of these things Um, are the same thing. So I dig a little bit when we talk about spreadsheets and I'll say, well, that's uh, fascinating. How do you get the data? I'm curious about the source of information. And then what do you do with that? Do you transform it or do you use it and just run a beautiful pivot table off of it or something like that? If there's any human transformation associated to it, it's really about unpacking that and saying how much of that is digitally ready and how much of this is going to be a lift that we can't um, handle. So that's one major stumbling block. The other one is really making sure we have a keen eye to process. Sometimes I find organizations say, well, 
especially at uh, some of the leadership level. And it's because, you know, they can distill things out and they think it's pretty simple, you know, uh, line of business A and line of business B, the sales process is pretty much the same. And they'll just probably say that. And it's and it's true, at some level, they probably are pretty much the same. But the people in those teams might be working very differently. And they haven't gotten to that level of understanding the similarities and dissimilarities. So I can come in and say, well, your processes are almost the same. So thou shalt just follow a common process. And you might be met with a lot of resistance because folks are just used to doing things their own way. So if I see too much of that, too much resistance to really think about things in a unified manner, I might say, hey, we're probably not ready. It's not because we're not ready for digitization. We're just not ready as a human, like as an organization, that sort of that change readiness isn't there. Um, And it's not that you can never start, but you might have to start in a different way. You might have to start with thinking like, can we do some prototyping? How do we do quick win prototyping? Um, can I put some UI screens in front of somebody and get them to react to it? Is this what they would like to do? Sometimes when it comes to complex dashboarding and reports, I model all of it in Excel and I show them or I create grids in Excel and I say, this is how you would now interact. Does this interaction feel right? Does it feel wrong? All of this is because I'm trying to invest that time up front, avoid sort of the opposition of going full bang and doing this entire beautiful transformation to find out no one wants to really participate on the back end. Um, So it's really that complexity sometimes of that data, which requires that sort of a human eye associated to it, or it's the processes aren't exactly the same or the organization doesn't believe that their processes are the same. And we've got to start to build sort of that unified uh, business process as a team. Those are some of the gotchas that I've typically seen. And um, I say that, you know, doing sort of a handful of interviews of different people in different roles gives you a ton of insight and they don't have to be very onerous actually. So in, in past lives, I've just done, you know, coffee chats with about 12 different people. And I said, Hey, we're thinking about something. Can I get like 15 minutes of your time, buy you a cup of coffee and hear from you? And through those, I'll find these answers exactly to this point and say, wow, there's it's impossible. We can't begin with this project because the process is too complicated um, and we're going to fail before we begin. And there you have it. Anandi, thank you so much for joining us on Transformation at Work. Any closing thoughts to managers thinking about all this and trying to figure out what transformation looks like for their businesses? Transformation is fun. Transformation is hard, but it's a lot of fun. And Salesforce as a product suite can really unlock the potential of a ton of manufacturers and distributors who really haven't maybe made this much of a move uh, looking at the sales processes, the customer service processes, and the marketing processes. So I think there's a huge opportunity for them. And I guess if I bring all of that together, really what we're unlocking is what a lot of these organizations call as revenue operations. It's the folks who are trying to measure the return on investment on everything that we're doing. Did the customer buy more? Are they buying the right stuff? Are they buying the profitable stuff? Are we losing money at the table? Those people, if you can imagine, are trying to cobble information from disparate systems, different teams who are not necessarily working together very painful additive administrative work that takes you away from doing what you're supposed to do as we, you know, started the whole conversation, you know, delight your customers, sell good things, you know, customer service, number one, right? Build that intimacy. I can't do any of that if I'm administratively just trying to prove 
every single day that we're bringing value. Automation, or more accurately, hyper-automation, it's one of those business words that everyone uses, and a lot of the time, we have kind of a limited scope of what it really means, especially when it comes to back-office processes. The reality is, at its core, hyper-automation is just about getting your employees back to doing their jobs, the real responsibilities that drive revenue and grow the business. Nobody wants to spend their day responding to emails, and by embracing Salesforce and making transformation happen, you're giving your employees that time back. This has been Transformation at Work. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you once again to Anandina Reinen for her incredible, incredible insights throughout the episode. Transformation at Work is, as always, produced by Jaren in collaboration with Salesforce. I am Jeff Stormer, your host and producer. Thank you once again for listening, and we hope that we'll see you again real soon.